Today's Power Talk episode was a great conversation between Greg and myself. Power Talk itself is a podcast, it's a series of conversations about the changing electrical grid, and we discuss ways that you, the listeners, can leverage technology to increase your reliability, lower your bills, and how you can safeguard yourself. Today, Greg and I were speaking about energy storage. Uh, we touched on the classic paradigms of energy storage. We talked about the importance of energy storage, and we really did deep dives into the specific applications and technologies that are available today. Uh, we discussed everything from pumped hydro, compressed air, molten salt, flywheels, uh, lots of different technologies. I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's episode. And Greg, it's great to see you again. Thanks for uh, buying me lunch today. I'm excited to kick off another podcast. So what, uh, what's top of mind for you? Well, top of my mind is uh, I'm glad I didn't let you have that second cup of coffee after lunch tonight <laughs> so uh, we can have a conversation here and not have you fly out of the room. But uh, the series is going great. We've had a great response to uh, Power Talk so far. And uh, the last episode was in response to a direct question uh, we received from a customer, and uh, this episode, and I think the next episode, are in response to some questions we've received, some inquiries we've received, and the general perception we have that there is a lot of interest out there in energy storage. So I think in this episode and the next episode, we're going to try to give uh, energy storage a good broad brush overview, um, educate our listeners, and uh, certainly, I think, uh, initiate a conversation that will go uh, way beyond these two episodes with regards to the role of energy storage in the future and the importance of energy storage uh, when we look at the uh, at the bulk utility system. Yeah, I've heard that um, storage is like the, the missing key to, to making renewables work, that it's, uh, the, the term I think is firming renewables, uh, that's where, where the storage fits in, so... Uh, okay, so kind of talk to me about energy storage. I've only really heard of it recently. Is it a recent concept? Is it? You know, it's a great question. Yes and no. Um, the concept or what we're doing right now with regards to large-scale storage um, was unheard of about 15 years ago. And yet, when you look at one of the most prominent um, types of, of uh, large-scale energy storage, which is pumped hydro, um, they were utilizing pumped hydro storage, I believe, in Italy and Switzerland back at the turn of the century. Wow. So the concept of energy storage is not necessarily new, but the idea of doing it at the massive scale um, at which it's being deployed right now, I think, is a relatively new concept. And, you know, we'll talk about the different types of storage and, uh, you know, the pros and cons of each. But just to give you an idea... Um, and we'll circle back on this. I think we may go all over the place today because it's <laughs> we, just we such, a, do. It's such an interesting topic, Dave. But um, if you look at the predominant uh, deployment right now of energy storage, both in front of and behind the meter, both retail and wholesale, it's lithium-ion batteries. And, you know, there's pros and cons, and I think our next episode we're probably going to dive deep into lithium-ion batteries. But to just give you an idea of how fast things have moved in the storage sector because of lithium ion batteries in October of 2012. So just less than 10 years ago, okay. the first uh, lithium ion utility scale project uh, was, uh, was commissioned. And I think it's very interesting in the fact that it was commissioned by Portland General Electric, 
Um, round of applause. Got to got to cheer for the home team as we're sitting here in Hillsboro, Oregon, and it was commissioned uh, less than two hours from here in Salem, Oregon, um, as part of a broader U.S. Department of Energy market demonstration project. Um, the, the the energy storage project actually was integrated into the into an existing distribution feeder, and the utility dispatched it with distributed generation to form what they called at the time a high reliability zone. What's a, a a distributed feeder? A distribution feeder. It's 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 a local circuit. It's a lower voltage circuit that kind of goes uh, from uh, from your uh, step down transformers at a at a substation so that it can be moved around locally and and used by uh, local loads. It's just it's it's like transmission, but distribution is local, uh, much more spaghetti, if you will, and okay. at a at a much lower uh, voltage level, so it can be moved around. But they learned a tremendous amount uh, from this experiment, and uh, I think it's still running today, actually. But at that at that time, it was considered to be an absolutely behemoth of a project at five megawatts, uh, with a total of 1.25 megawatt hours. So uh, fascinating when now we're talking about you know energy deployments in a gigawatt range. So it's amazing, it's amazing how fast that technology has come in, in, in just 10 years. And we, 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 can, uh, we, we can dive deep into that at, at, at any time. Okay, so a five megawatt installation, does that mean like a, the, the town of Salem is backed up for a number of hours? How, how quickly would uh, those megawatts run out? Oh well, you know it, it all depends on a load, but five megawatts is not a, is, is not a huge load. You know, to give you an idea, uh, we have a data center here across the street from us that uh, utilizes almost ninety megawatts. Wow! You know, so five megawatts, depending on the area of the country you're in, or something like that, five megawatts would be the load for you know. I've seen math that says almost five thousand houses, something like that, on the residential side, or it's a respectable industrial commercial type load. But the uh, the, the the other thing you talk about when you talk about uh, energy storage, it's not only the capacity, but it's the duration. Right. So the total amount of uh, of uh, of uh, megawatt hours was was a total of uh, one point two five megawatt hours. But before we go deep on that, let's let's talk a little bit more about energy storage because uh, I, I think as we've just touched on, it is a relatively new paradigm in the world of uh, in the world of electricity, certainly in the utility world. And I notice even the name of it, energy storage, makes it a far broader topic than electricity storage. Well, yeah, essentially what you're doing is is uh, you can store. Electricity. Well, yeah. There's there's basically three types of storage. There's mechanical storage, thermal storage, and chemical storage. But ideally, what you're trying to do is you're trying to store energy, mm-hmm. so you can produce electricity when it's needed and where it's needed. And uh, you know the the classic paradigms are you know with, with electricity is it's always been you have to produce it and consume it in real time. Mm-hmm. I remember giving presentations 15 years ago on a large development I was working on where I was explaining to audiences of, uh, of 
interested people and audiences of stakeholders that we can't store energy. We literally have to produce it and consume it at the same time. It has to be constantly balanced. And you know, these are the challenges. And this is why this plant that we're developing has all this ramp up and ramp down capability. Well, you know, the world has changed quite a bit with a number of these storage technologies. Um, until, you know, 15 years ago or so, uh, and you know, depending on where you come from, I, I still believe this is true myself, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm a dinosaur and I prefer some of the fossil fuels, but some of the best storage out there is, is gas in a pipe. Right. That can be viewed as storage or liquid fuel in a tank, be it diesel fuel, be it hydro treated vegetable oil, biodiesel, but fuel in a tank and uh, gas in a pipe are certainly forms of storage and are very, very effective forms of storage when you're looking at specific durations. If you look at like the energy density, I've, I've seen this done where a guy took a gallon of water and he said, imagine this is a gallon of gasoline. And then right beside it, he starts stacking up soda can, soda can, soda can, soda can. And it was a comparison of to, to store the amount of energy you get in one gallon of gasoline in lithium ion batteries takes something like 12 times the footprint. I might have that exact number wrong, but it's, it takes just dramatically more space for uh, to, to contain the energy, and then because it's individual cells, uh, it takes even more space because there's area between all the cells. Yes, power density is a, uh, is a huge consideration uh, when you're looking at energy storage, and there are pros and cons of the different technologies with regards to... Uh, the amount of space that they take, or the uh, the environment they need, or the natural uh, the natural type of terrain that they need. Like for example, uh, about ninety five percent of the utility scale stores in the United States is pumped hydro. I really like pumped hydro. That one makes a lot of sense too. Pumped hydro makes a tremendous amount of sense, but it's a very very difficult technology to bring to bear from a couple of perspectives. One, you need the terrain. So you need that specific area where you've got an upper reservoir and a lower reservoir uh, with a massive source of water to move around. And then you need to be able to not only get your permits and build it, which uh, developing and bringing a pump storage project online is a typically about a 10-year process between the permitting and construction. It's about 10 years. But then you've got to also make sure you've got the transmission capability to bring the uh, to bring that uh, power to market, and uh, I'm probably going to circumvent you here, but your next question, uh, getting to know you pretty well through our series here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think your next question possibly is: uh, Is there any pump storage being located in Peterson Bowers territory? That is very much something I want to know. Yeah, folks, I guarantee you, we're, we're not reading off a script. I'm just looking <laughs> Nate in the eyes, and I, I know what's coming next. It's kind of looking at your puppy dog when it's feeding time. So uh, realistically, yes, there are some projects being developed. In Southern California, in the Lake Elsinore area, uh, Next Era has been at it, uh, developing a 1,000 megawatt pump storage project for quite some time. There are some developments uh, in the, um, in, in the uh, south central part of California, okay. uh, near, near the wind resources there. Uh, there are some uh, developments being worked on there, and there are two, two um, pump storage projects being worked on in, in, in Oregon. Well, one's kind of Washington, Oregon, but it's, on, it's out in the Columbia Basin. There's one in the Goldendale area okay. that is actually a pretty large project. Um, it's, called, it's called Goldendale, um, and it's actually uh, cited to be about 1,200 megawatts 
with 20 hours of durational capacity. Okay, so, so, so that's 12, a monster. 1,200 megawatts at 20 hours. Um, what, what can you back up with? Like, is that, is that, does that back up the state of Oregon? Uh, does that back up um, a city within Oregon? I guess how, what, what, what's, what's the scale of something like 1,000 megawatts? Thousand megawatts is uh, is is exceedingly large. Give you give you an idea, um, just off the top of my head here. When you look at the California ISO, which is about eighty percent of the state of California, uh, the CAISO, their their peak load is typically around fifty thousand megawatts. So a thousand megawatts is, is not insignificant. California is um, huge. A thousand megawatts in many in many instances is the output of a nuclear plant. Wow. 1,000 megawatts is the output of a significant amount of the wind energy in the Columbia Gorge. So if you're dependent upon wind energy in the Columbia Gorge and you have a couple of days uh, where you don't have wind out there for some reason, uh, this provides you 1,200 megawatts for 20 hours. So this is a project that is in, in development right now. And then the other project, it's being developed by the same developer. Um, the other project is called Swan Lake. Okay. And it's in Klamath County, Oregon. And it's cited to be about 400 megawatts for nine hours. And again, these are massive, uh, massive um, undertakings uh, that will take a decade or more to bring to bear. But uh, some of the most cost-effective uh, storage out there. Pump storage right now, uh, if you look at it, it's probably the cheapest storage out there coming in at about depending on the project, roughly between $100 and $200 a kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about other metrics for other types. But the beauty of it is uh, the pump storage offers you a 40 to 60 year design life. So these resources um, last for decades. Uh, very, very efficient, coming in at about 80% efficiency. Pump storage as a technology will typically- What, what, is, what does 80% efficiency mean? It means that if I take 100 units of energy to pump water up to that higher reservoir uh -huh. that I'm going to use, I get 80% of that back in the course of, of, of utilizing that energy. Is that good? That's pretty good because uh, any, any transfer of energy is going to have inefficiencies and there's going to be losses. Mm -hmm. So 80% for a resource like this actually is pretty good. And so like... Um we just got out of a bad drought. Uh, many of the folks we care about are still stuck in a drought. For these um, these hydro pumped hydro facilities, could that water also be used, um, say, for agriculture if if the need arose, or once it's in the pumped hydro, is it pretty well slated to that task? Um, it really depends on the design of the pumped hydro facility. Um, there's you know to to really keep it simple. Um, there's two basic designs. There's open loop design or a closed loop design. Okay. In a closed loop design, you're basically utilizing that water over and over again. In an open design, um, you might be pulling water out of the Columbia, running it up and then running it back down and actually letting it uh, produce even more energy as, as it flows downstream. So it really depends on the design of the, of the pumped hydro station. Almost and, a hybrid of a, like a, a hydroelectric dam plus pumped hydro. Correct. And, and, you, and you will see them co-located at times. You know, you, you will see it co-located at times. So um, I don't have a lot of expertise in this area, but, you know, um, you know I, I've shared with you a lot of what I know, but just to give you an idea, um, you know, it's, it, it's a very, very viable technology, uh, massive technology, and one 
that uh, provides you know societal benefit. But again, it, it, it really depends on the large transmission capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, and like in California, the Helms uh, pumped pumped hydro facility um, really is powered by um, Diablo Canyon at night when that nuclear plant is producing all that energy that's not necessarily needed. That's when they're pumping that stuff back and forth. So uh, as Diablo Canyon changes, uh, it'll change a lot of the uh, uh, electron flow in the transmission system in that area and the interplay with the pump storage. But those pump storage facilities will become even more important to California, as, as you alluded to earlier, as we need to firm renewables, as the system as a whole becomes more and more uh, intermittent because of sun and wind. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these energy storage resources uh, become important. And I think one of the things that you're going to see here from uh, our perspective is that as we talked about with regards to bulk energy supply, either in front of the meter on the wholesale system or behind the meter, it's really an all of the above approach. Solar is necessary, energy storage is necessary, reciprocating engines are necessary, hydro is necessary, nuclear is necessary. There's not one answer. So it's a portfolio of solutions and various storage solutions will have uh, different applications where they make sense and different applications where they won't. Yeah, I'm becoming of the, uh, or I'm coming to the opinion that resiliency equals redundancy. And, and even beyond just electricity, if, if you only have one way of doing something, then I don't, I don't see any resiliency in that. It's just a single point of failure. So you're talking about uh, this mix of storage technologies, of generation technologies. Uh, sounds like we're going to have a very firm grid uh, by the time we finish this, this rather difficult journey of getting there. And uh, okay, so so we're talking pumped hydro, and that would fall under the mechanical storage. Is that correct? Correct. And um, are there other um, viable mechanical storage technologies? Um, there are. Um, there is uh, what's called compressed air. Huh. And we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, flywheels also would be considered uh, a, a mechanical uh, storage technology. Yeah, I remember when uh, when Cat used to sell those things. They, they were neat. Flywheels, they're, they're really cool. Um, there's actually a, a company in Hayward, California um, that has a, a neat solution for a flywheel. Flywheels are, um, again, we talked about the specific um a specific application for a technology. Flywheels are really good when you need very, very fast response. I've heard that uh, plastic bag manufacturing is uh, a great application for that because uh, a spike in electricity will throw off their machines and then a lull will throw off their machines and then every plastic bag getting produced at that moment is trash and you have to throw them all away restart everything so well, i hope we can recycle them and not throw them away recycle them thank yes. you for that we'll recycle <laughs> those plastic bags worthy as, correction you know, as, as a uh, as an avid sea kayaker i have a uh, i have a concern about plastic bags it's amazing <laughs> how many of them wind up in the ocean if you're using a plastic bag please recycle it but uh flywheels yeah very fast response they're great for load leveling they're great for voltage uh, support uh, they've got a very, very long life cycle. They've got low maintenance costs and a very, very high power density, but they're just not suitable for long duration. What kind of duration do you get out of a, of a good flywheel? Uh, you, you know, minutes to, to an hour, that kind of thing. Not, not hours. Okay, so enough time for you to kick on your generator. 
Yeah, that's that's a great point you raise. Let's 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 interject that into the conversation right now for our listeners to help them out and. Uh, you know, to, to everybody listening to Power Talk, we, we appreciate it. Keep getting us those questions. Uh, one of our fallacies that we're learning is we live in this world, so we, we talk a lot of jargon. So we're, we're going to make a concerted <laughs> effort here to make things a little simpler. So when you're talking about energy storage, um, it can be divided into long-duration storage and short-duration storage. And that dividing line right now is about four hours. Four hours or less is considered, you know, short to medium duration and anything over four hours is considered long duration. Okay. And there's no magic to that. I think it's just a, um, I think it'll change over time. I think it's just a, uh, an offshoot of the capability of the technologies and where they are today. And I'm thinking from, from a grid standpoint um, that you want that long duration. Is that, is that accurate? It is, yes. Um, the longer duration, uh, we can get in storage, more, the more cost-effectively we can produce long-duration storage, um, the more resiliency and, and, uh, we can have in the grid, and uh, the more reliable that grid will be to uh, address the times when uh, intermittent resources aren't available. So what kind of long-term technologies are out there? Uh, well, this is great because let's, let's finish off our conversation of, uh, of, of mechanical yeah. storage. And uh, one of the long-term, longer-term uh, storage technologies that's out there on the mechanical side is called compressed air storage. Okay. Is this like in tanks? Um, it can be in tanks or it can be in underground salt caverns. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. The, uh, the original uh, thought behind compressed air storage were um, that it would be in underground salt caverns. And uh, the challenge with that is there are very few places in the world that have underground salt caverns of a size large enough to support the development of a compressed air facility. Yeah. So to just bookend the conversation right now, um, you know, there is a very there are, are very specific ge geo geological requirements for compressed air facilities, and there's actually only two operating in the world right now. Uh, there's one in uh, McIntosh, Alabama, and there's one in Germany, and the total capacity of those two is, uh, I'm not sure the one in Germany, the one in Alabama is about 110 megawatts. Wow. Uh, what's interesting though, is uh, there is a company called Hydrostore, and a good friend of mine is an executive at that company, Kurt Hildebrand, I hope you're listening. I'm gonna plug Hydrostore right now, but Hydrostore actually has a couple of contracts with the state of California, and they're doing eight hour plus of, uh, of uh, storage. I think they're doing five or 600 megawatt projects I think they've contracted two projects with the state of California, and they're doing some development in Texas. They're a company that's headquartered in uh, Ontario, Canada. Hmm. Uh, I know that the uh, Canadian pension funds just invested some money into them. And uh, very, very promising technology where um, they're, they're using both above and below ground. So it's a, it's a hybrid of uh, how they're storing that compressed air. It's a newer technology, uh, much more modular than what's been done in the past, and uh, very, very promising for uh, for specific uh, applications where longer duration storage is needed. And modularity is is important when we're when we're moving at the speed we're moving. Uh, you, you said uh, the hydro is about eighty percent efficient. Do you know what efficiency looks like on the compressed gas? Yeah, it's it's not quite as good. The efficiency, and uh, I'm not sure if this is hydro storage efficiency, but the data I was able to find with regards to efficiency on existing compressed air energy storage projects is somewhere between 40 and 55%. Okay. 
Okay. I mean, I guess if it's uh, if it's free energy from the sun, any storage is good storage. Exactly. Yeah. You you don't want to you don't want to lose that energy. You won't be able to use that energy, and uh, especially uh, if you have to curtail solar midday, if you could store it, um, even if you're paying a penalty uh, with regards to the efficiency of that storage medium, um, it's still something that should be evaluated. So that's compressed air storage. Um, let's talk about thermal storage a little bit. Okay. And uh, thermal storage, uh, a couple different types of thermal storage, um, but the most uh, pre prevalent really is probably molten salt. And uh, molten salt was uh, something that was thought about for, uh, for a long time because um, you can get salt pretty hot to hundreds of degrees. And in theory, uh, you can store energy in salt for days, hmm. uh, potentially even weeks if you get it hot enough and it's in the right environment. And the first molten salt project was proved out in uh, 1996 in California in the uh, Solar 2 project. Uh, molten salt is something that you typically want to do with concentrating solar as opposed to solar PV. Okay. Uh, it, it, it is pricey. Now, define concentrating solar for me, please. Concentrating solar is, uh, we, we, all of us see solar everywhere um, when you see like solar panels on a rooftop, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think I commented when we went out for lunch today, I saw a house up here in Portland. It's, it's pretty cloudy right now and overcast and raining like it's supposed to be. And this roof was just covered with solar panels. And I understand we'll see sun on Tuesday. Okay, but I, I think when you cover your roof with solar panels in Portland, Oregon, and you are an optimist, so this person was obviously an optimist. But uh, having said that, we all we're all we, we all know what PV panels look like. In fact, uh, a lot of us can look at our, our desk calculators, and there's a little <laughs> PV panel on that calculator because it's a solar power calculator. Um, concentrating solar is where you're using mirrors to concentrate a beam um, onto a recept receptacle, and there's two basic forms of concentrating solar. One is where you're using a parabolic curved mirror okay. where there's a tube in the center of that mirror and hot oil runs in that tube. And um, you heat that oil to, uh, to produce energy. And those were like the SEGS 1 and SEGS 2 projects in California with the concentrating solar. Um, there was a time uh, about 15 years ago where concentrating solar was uh, much cheaper than photovoltaic. Hmm. And uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, photovoltaic has eclipsed um, concentrating solar as a much more cost-effective solution. I, I think it's Saudi Arabia. They have a concentrated solar uh, desalination plant. So they're, they're just using, uh, it's, it's a dome surrounded by lots and lots of mirrors, or, or it will be once they're done building right. that thing. And that heats up the water enough to... Uh, make it evaporate and leave all the salts behind it. It's amazing how hot it can get. And in fact, uh, if you have flown from Oakland or Sacramento to Las Vegas, and uh, just as you get across the California border, um, you'll see a huge bright light out in the desert there. Hmm. And that's a, uh, that's a, that, that is a concentrating solar project uh, where all the mirrors are pointing at a tower. There's actually a boiler on top of that tower. Yeah. And just a huge project, like 500 something megawatts concentrating solar project. And that's based on an Israeli technology. So that's cool. So they, they do work out there. There was a time when uh, there was a lot of different um, experimentation going on with different solar technologies. 
In fact, there was a national laboratory just outside of uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they had a lot of those solar technologies working in the field. I had the privilege to visit that laboratory about 20 years ago, looking at the various uh, technologies. It was really cool back then, but solar PV has gotten so cheap, it's solid state, it works. And uh, when I think these days, when you hear the word solar, everybody just envisions, you know, solar photovoltaic panels. Right, so, okay. So, kind of rewinding a little bit. So you, you use the sun's energy to superheat salt um, in, until it freaking melts. And then uh, you store that in uh, a thermos, let's say, in something that's very well insulated. Right. So then the, uh, the efficiency would, I'm, I'm assuming, the sooner you use it, the more efficient it is. But if you let it sit out there for maybe a day or two, um, would your efficiency drop? As yeah, there's, there's, there's decay. It's, it's going to decay. And the, the rate of decay of the resource, of that molten salt resource, is, is dependent upon the geological formation in which it sits. Mm. You know, typically, they're underground. But there are, there are arguments, and I've read that uh, people are saying that you can, for, for weeks, up to a couple of weeks, you can utilize that heat uh, to produce steam and then uh, produce energy. One of the challenges is is you're producing steam to run that steam through a steam turbine. Mm -hmm. You know, a steam turbine is maybe thirty percent efficient. Ooh. You know, so you're efficient. Well, it's 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 a cycle. It is what it is. You know, but so from an efficiency standpoint, it's it's not that great. But it, from a cost perspective, um, it's supposedly um, a relatively cost-effective way to store energy for a long period of time when you have um, the right geological. Um, uh, area the right the, you know the right considerations and and the right uh, the right site and the right area with again the transmission you need the transmission and you need the right uh, geological characteristics so very uh, limited use case but you know since we're trying to be exhaustive in our conversation of uh, <laughs> energy storage uh, couldn't have the conversation with at least with at least getting molten salt mentioned so I think we've covered thermal um, I think we've covered. Uh, mechanical. I do want to add to mechanical. Uh, we talked about uh, gas in a pipe and oil in a tank. Okay. Um, I, I think that's arguably mechanical storage, but you know it, it could be argued as chemical storage as well. It, it can it, that can go either way. Um, hydrogen is an area that is uh, can be looked at as thermal, mechanical, or chemical, depending on the medium. Uh, in which it's ultimately going to be used. I'm super interested in where, uh, where hydrogen's going. Everybody's interested in hydrogen these days. Hydrogen is uh, very, very, very exciting these days. Uh, super sexy. Uh, everybody's interested in hydrogen. A lot of money going into the sector, and uh, I can assure you that we will have at least one, if not more, podcast <coughs> dedicated to hydrogen uh, going forward, especially as a Caterpillar dealership. Um, because hydrogen is going to be a big part of who we are in the future. Caterpillar is demonstrating leadership in the hydrogen space mm -hmm. uh, through the development we're doing on our reciprocating engines, through work we're doing with fuel cells. And uh, actually, uh, talk for another day, but I am actually involved with Peterson. We're working on the, uh, on the Obsidian Northwest Hydrogen Hub. Hmm. There's a number of hydrogen hubs that are being... Uh, developed throughout the country. What is a hydrogen hub? A hydrogen hub is a centralized area that is utilizing and producing hydrogen uh, through uh, 
producing hydrogen through uh, typically renewable energy and then utilizing that hydrogen uh, for um, fuel cells to produce power for uh, or, or reciprocating engines to produce power for like data centers or large energy users for agricultural uses, producing fertilizers. Mm -hmm. So it's the idea where you're co-locating energy production and energy consumption at the same time through producing hydrogen through um, through electrolyzers, through you know, through electrolyzers, through using re renewable energy, and then having the users of that energy um, closely, you know, close by or within pipeline distance, where you can pipe that hydrogen to them, and they can utilize that hydrogen. So it's part of the carbon-free economy. It's out in the future. Um, there are a number of hydrogen hubs in the early stages of development, and the federal government in the first infrastructure package that was passed has allocated eight billion dollars and grant money to help get these hydrogen uh, hubs moving. So uh, the hub we're working on right now in the Pacific Northwest is going to be centered out in the uh, Hermiston area. Hmm. And uh, this time tomorrow, I'll actually be uh, meeting with some of the developers of that project to talk about uh, Caterpillar Solutions and how uh, the, the developments we're working on, especially with reciprocating engines utilizing 100% hydrogen, uh, will have a role within that hydrogen hub going forward. I've got two, two hydrogen questions for you that both deal with time. Okay, and then we're going to get off hydrogen and save it for another day. Love it. I love it. Okay. Uh, first one is, um, like, so if you, if you bottle hydrogen or you store the hydrogen, does it decay? Or what's, what's its rate of decay? Um, question I really don't know. Uh, what, what I would tell you is that if the uh, medium in which you're storing it, if the tank doesn't have any leaks and it's a solid tank. I don't. It's it's H two. There shouldn't be any decay, uh, as long as nothing else is being introduced to it. Okay. So that's one of the exciting things about hydrogen is people are looking uh, for hydrogen. We talked about long duration and short duration storage. Yeah. With four hours being the break line, hydrogen kind of changes the game for long duration storage, where we talk about what's called seasonal storage where we can bottle that hydrogen in the summer mm -hmm. and then utilize it in the winter. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, so it's not something we would need to store for years, so to speak, but certainly not any concerns about storing it for months to being able to shift resources seasonally uh, to be able to use, you know, wind. We have a lot of wind in the summer, not much in the winter, so we can use summer wind in the winter and, uh, and we can use uh, summer solar in the winter. That's, that's fantastic. Seasonal shifting. Uh, and then my other question... And by the way, the, with regards to wind, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm coming from a California perspective, so we have a lot of wind in the summer in California. I'm not sure about how, how it works at Columbia Gorge. Just starting to learn the gorge. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then my next question around time is, I think it was episode one. Um, you had talked about Caterpillar working on an engine that can do 100% hydrogen. Um, do you know or do you have line of sight to when um, Caterpillar expects that to hit the market? Yeah, those, uh, the uh, one, one of our engines, uh, I think it's a 3412, uh, will be available to utilize 100% hydrogen in uh, 2023, deliveries in 2023. Next year. Next year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That, well, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Okay, then, then you wanted to carry uh, the conversation. Um, 
past hydrogen. So what's what's next up for you? Past hydrogen, I think uh, you know we've talked about mechanical and thermal storms. I think the the next is uh, is batteries. Okay. And um, there's a lot of different types of batteries out there, um, and there's a lot of work going on with with batteries. And I think what we want to do at this point is give our listeners an overview of what's out there in the battery marketplace. And uh, lithium ion is certainly leading the charge with regards to battery technology and battery deployments right now. And I think it's best to probably set that aside and let's let's do our next episode exclusively on lithium ion batteries. There's a lot to talk about. about There is a lot to talk about because lithium ion batteries transcend both the uh, electric power sector at all levels, at the utility level, at the behind the meter commercial and industrial level, and at the residential level. At the consumer device level. At the consumer device level, yes, your cell phone. And then if we look, if we go beyond that, um, the electrification of the transportation sector right now um, appears to be uh, dependent upon lithium ion. So, so we'll. That, yeah, that there's, there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about there, both uh, both opportunities and challenges. So, um, let's talk about um, let's talk about shorter duration batteries right now. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's talk about lead acid batteries. I think lead acid batteries are something that uh, Caterpillar has a lot of experience with. Um, you know, most of our equipment out there in the field has a lead acid battery out there somewhere. Your car has a lead acid battery. Out AKA there. a normal battery. What we consider to be a normal battery. Um, lead acid batteries were amongst the first battery technologies used in energy storage mm-hmm. um, because we understood them. Um, they're heavy. They have a very low energy density. What does that mean? Uh, if we're talking about energy density uh, units, and I'll be a little bit of an engineer here, but we're going to keep this in layman's terms. Everybody can follow me here. When we're talking about energy density, we're talking about kilowatt hours or how much energy per square foot, per acre, per whatever, you know, whatever your site is. But let's talk about per square foot. It's, you know, how much energy per square foot. Mm-hmm. So something that has a very high energy density would give us a lot of energy per square foot, where something with low energy density would give us much less energy per square foot and as a result require a lot more real estate to give us uh, the amount of energy uh, as a technology with a higher energy density. Okay, so have have lead acid batteries ever been used on anything grid scale? Um, smaller, you know, just just for testing and stuff like that. But I think there's a realization out there that they're just not gonna cut the mustard. There's been a lot of uh, experimentation done with batteries, and you know, in addition to the low energy density, um, lead acid has a relatively short cycle life. You know, and that's one of the things you have to look at with batteries is how often you're cycling them because the one thing I think we all know about batteries is every time you use a battery, it dies a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, every time you cycle that battery, you, you run it down to almost zero, you know, wherever you run it down to, and then you charge it back up and run it down again. Every time you go through a cycle, that battery dies a little bit. So lead acid just doesn't have that much of a, of a cycle life or a calendar life. We have to replace our car batteries every four or five years, mm-hmm. three years these days, you know. But uh, they're not making them like they used to, Nate. I just had to buy one last week, and I could only find a three-year battery. But um, they are relatively inexpensive. 
So we're still going to see these batteries for like UPSs and stuff like that, uninterrupted power supplies. There are um, there are certain applications where they're still going to make sense. So I don't think uh, we can write them off wholeheartedly because there still will be, for the foreseeable future, a role for lead-acid batteries. Okay. Um, one of the really exciting uh, types of batteries out there right now that um, the chemistries are kind of all over the place and lots of different things are happening with them is, is flow batteries. Yes, yes, I've seen these. They are, they are cool. Because flow batteries um, give us the potential for longer durations. And we talked a little bit earlier about the importance of longer duration storage in the context of the electrical grid and firming, as you said, great word, firming or backstopping intermittent resources, the importance of these long duration batteries. I mean, a lithium ion battery, four to six hours, that's, that's, that's all it has, mm -hmm. you know? So if she's gone, and when I say if she's gone, I mean, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Yeah. If the sun isn't shining for a couple of days in, uh, in California or something like that, you need something that's got longer duration. And the, the inability to even last a night is, I don't, I don't know, alarming is too strong of a word, but I mean, four hours just seems ridiculously short. You can stretch a little bit by load shedding and stuff like that, but you know, to give you an idea, it's it's it, it's finite. It's very finite. Where some of these uh, some of these flow batteries uh, offer, you know, twelve hour duration, mm -hmm. twenty hour duration. Uh, there's a company out of Massachusetts called. Um, Form energy that is advertising a hundred hours of duration. A hundred hours, wow! And they're using a very, very simple uh, chemistry. They're basically using iron and water, <laughs> and uh, you know it's a they're they're starting to do some uh, demonstration projects. Very, very, very small, mm -hmm. one megawatt range. But this is a company that's attracted investment dollars from uh, from, uh, from 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 Bill Gates. And from uh, from Jeff Bezos, so I don't think it's something that you can uh, discount. I think uh, they're doing something right. They're getting some real money in there, and uh, we'll see what those technologies will do. But they they are potential game changers uh, with regards to certain applications. Again, no one thing is going to replace everything. There's room enough for all. Come one, come all. Bring us your benefits. Bring us your use cases, and uh, the uh, electric utility business will 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 find a home for it. Now there's a uh, an organ company you were telling me about um, working in the uh, the iron water salt uh, battery space. Uh, can can you tell us more about that? There is there's a company uh, very close to here actually called uh, ESS Inc. ESS Energy, and um, they produce an iron flow battery. It's basically iron salt in water. And what's really interesting about their battery, what they're saying right now, is um, there's no degradation um, in, in that fluid um, over time um, mm. because of their, their proton pump and the way they're managing hydrogen within the system and all that. A proton pump. That yeah. is that is. Um, I think that's what they call it. I, I met with these guys, a couple of guys from ESS at, uh, at the uh, Energy Storage North America a few months ago in Long Beach. Good guys. They've got a really interesting product. It's kind of a hybrid product between um, between uh, short, you know, between the four-hour duration uh, lithium-ion and, and the longer duration. Um, it comes in different platforms, but right now, 
Um, they are working with uh, Portland General Electric um, to do uh, a couple demonstration projects. And, uh, you know, just a very, very exciting development right here in our backyard. So, Do we uh, know anything about, like, what applications a flow battery would or would not make sense? Or is the technology still uh, too new? I think any, anywhere you need longer duration. And, you know, the, 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 uh, it's economics as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there have been a couple of longer duration uh, RFOs, requests for offers in California where load-serving entities, those could be utilities, they could be community choice aggregators, people who provide electric on, on, a, on a wholesale basis were looking for longer duration storage. And uh, there has been some contracting with, uh, with uh, flow batteries, and there's been some contracting with uh, what I call double lithium. Hmm. So you take a lithium times two and you get eight hours. E, there you go. You know? There so, you go. Which suggests to me that from a cost perspective, uh, the flow batteries aren't quite there yet from a cost perspective. I'm thinking just from a materials standpoint, um, like cobalt, nickel, lithium um, aren't super common, but, uh, but salt and iron, uh, those are super common. So I'm curious... Uh, to kind of see where the, the future of that price goes, just because if their if their inputs are so much easier to get, uh, especially if you're trying to do ethical sourcing, um, I imagine that's going to apply downward pressure to the to the cost of these flow batteries. Yeah, and um, one of the one of the biggest um, one of the biggest areas for exploration uh, and, and research and development and, and movement in the entire battery energy storage sector is chemistry. And yeah. lots of people are doing lots of things with different chemistries. And chemistry is not an area where I go too deep. I got through <laughs> Chem 1 and Chem 2 in college. And then when I took organic chemistry, when I sat down with the final exam, I wondered where I had been for the last 12 weeks because none <laughs> of it seemed familiar whatsoever. But I did get through it with, with a B, to, uh, to my amazement. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I've never been a, a whiz at chemistry. But there are tremendous... Uh, advances and a lot of experimentation going on with chemistry and uh, some of the uh, chemicals some of the um, elements some of the materials that you mentioned um, when talking about lithium-ion batteries like nickel like manganese like cobalt uh, we'll have that discussion in uh, in probably our next podcast when we get deep into lithium-ion batteries but some of these uh, some of these materials are of grave concern with regards to limiting uh, the availability of batteries from a supply chain perspective. But we'll save that conversation for another day. But yeah, if you can replace, you know, cobalt with iron, yeah. you know, and nickel with salt, that's exciting stuff. It's pretty much dirt. Yeah, that's, that, that's pretty <laughs> exciting stuff. Uh, right now, flow batteries are about 5% of the, of the energy storage market. Already? Yeah, so about 5%. You know, so I, you're, you're into flow batteries, I could tell, because oh, yeah. flow batteries most, most, people would, most people say, oh, that's it, you know, 5%. They don't, have, <laughs> they don't stand a chance, but no, and it's already, yeah, I'm going to put my money on that horse. But, well, uh, I'll tell you, my, the dozer side of my, of my heart uh, loves hydro more than anything else because I'm, I'm sure that this requires excavators all across the mountain. Uh, but yeah, so we, we've hit um, various battery technologies. We talked flywheels. Uh, we've discussed hydrogen. Um, salt, <laughs> both molten salt and salt caves compressed with air. What um, are we missing anything on this one? Or, or yes, 
yes, we're 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 probably missing lots of things. I, I think our goal here uh, was to give our listeners um, an overview of what's happening in the energy storage space, an overview of uh, what technologies are out there, what technologies are being worked on, and where thoughts are going with regards to the other technologies. I am certain that there is a laboratory within 100 miles of us right now that's working on something that we haven't even heard of yet. Mm. You know, so there's a lot of energy being sp being uh, expended into energy storage, into the research and development uh, and, uh, and, and battery uh, development uh, with, with different chemistries. And I think it's gonna be very, very exciting. I mean, to give you, to give you an idea, just to, you know, to, to give you a, a couple of metrics here, um, if you go back to like 2012, okay. okay, let's go back 10 years, okay? Um, there was a total, if you're looking at like battery storage, forget pumped hydro, all that kind of stuff, but just battery storage for, for utility grade battery storage, um, there was about 340 megawatts worldwide, globally, 340 megawatts hmm. of battery energy storage at the utility, at, at the utility um, um, level. And then if you fast forwarded five years to 2017, that went from 340 megawatts to mm -hmm. 6,000 megawatts. And California right now, California alone, is almost doubling the amount of energy storage every year. I mean, we went from 2012 where we had 340 megawatts to now where projects at the gigawatt level are being procured. It's just amazing at, uh, how, how large it's gotten and how much it's scaled in such a short period of time. Absolutely phenomenal. So we're, we're gonna see more and more energy storage and uh, as we bring it out, there, there will be uh, trials and tribulations. We're going to learn things. Some of it's going to work, some of it's not going to work. Uh, we're going to find values we didn't expect. We're going to find challenges we didn't expect. There's uh, a number of issues with lithium-ion batteries that, that we can talk about, certainly from, from the safety perspective and from the deployment perspective. But what's been happening is, is that public utilities commissions in certain states have been mandating um, energy storage deployments to get technology out in the field and get it working uh, with the realization that if uh, from a societal goal, if they're going to really be able to advance and, uh, and realize the decarbonization targets that many of these uh, states and nations have, uh, it can't be done without energy storage. And uh, you know, there's the push-pull and the yin-yang between um, you know the policy and the state of the art of technology, right? And you know just to give you a, a, a really poignant example of that, uh, California led the pack when it came out with SB 100, Senate Bill 100, which says we're going to decarbonize the entire electric sector by 2045. By 2045, we are not going to produce any carbon in the production of electricity in California. And uh, that was groundbreaking at the time. Bold. It was bold. It was visionary. And who knew, right? And what's happened now is everybody's trying to leapfrog that. And the federal government saying, no, let's do it by 2030. You know, and it, it's, it's like name that tune. I don't know if you remember the game show, name that tune, you know, but I could decarbonize in five years. I can decarbonize in four years. I can decarbonize in three years. You go, you name that tune in three years. And that's what's been happening. And um, 
Governor Newsom in California a while back, not too long ago, said, uh, we are not moving fast enough. I want to move 2045 back to 2035. I want to increase the trajectory, decrease the traje- trajectory by 10 years. Yeah. And they hired a bunch of uh, consultants to look at that. And one of the consultants uh, was E3 out of San Francisco, a very, very well-respected consultant. I think another one was Rhododendron. There's a few consultants that looked at this. They made their report to the California Air Resources Board uh, within the past couple of weeks. And what they found is that if we try to pull the goal back to 2035, California would lose on the order of a half a million jobs a year. And we would increase the cost of electric delivery, generation and delivery in the state by over $110 billion a year. You know, so there are limitations. There are technological limitations. I think I've said before that I believe regulations are 10 to 15, maybe even more years ahead of the technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that report that Carb heard a few weeks ago was just kind of uh, underscoring, I think, what a lot of us who are paying attention actually believe. But uh, Almost exactly. But having said that, uh, you know, a lot of money is going to be spent. There's going to be a lot of new technologies that are going to be developed. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing here at Peterson Caterpillar is that um, the faster this moves forward, uh, the more important our products and services become uh, because of our ability to provide our customers and our future customers with both reliability and resiliency behind the meter with, uh, with the various solutions that Caterpillar can bring to bear. Yeah, the, the situation reminds me of um, like tier four emissions, and I remember how how difficult it was uh, for all sorts of manufacturers to hit uh, these emissions requirements. And uh, you know, there was a, a competitive wheel loader where their engines caught on fire so often that from the factory they had a hole on the hood with a red circle around it and images of fire extinguishers. So from the factory, they, they put a hole so you can put a fire extinguisher uh, into the hood and, and extinguish your flaming engine. And I am, I'm thinking we're going to have... That was, that was they, not we. That right? was they, not Okay, we. just make sure that was they, not we. Unnamed different brand. Okay, that's fine. Uh, and I, I think we're going to have more uh, pain points... Um, well, we have. I mean, they're able to get the, these crazy, another uh, not uh, ambitious, carbon-free um, targets. Yeah, I mean, there have been, and we'll talk about this in the next podcast where we talk about lithium-ion. But there have been a number of incidents with lithium-ion storage, with thermal runaway, with fires, the, those types of things. So you know, we're, we're learning. We're, we're learning as a society. Again, I don't think any of these are the answer. Um, I certainly don't have the answer. Although, you know, there's a lot of people out there who want to see internal combustion engines go away tomorrow. It's not going to happen in our lifetime. You know, uh, I I say this quote all the time from our second president, John Adams. Facts, indeed, are stubborn things. And (laughs) uh, that's the fact. I mean, internal combustion engines are not going away anytime soon. And, uh, you know, trying to... uh, remove the internal combustion engine in California by 2035 from the automotive sector. Good luck with that, you know, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more in our next podcast as well. I think we're probably getting pretty close here on time. 
I think we are. I think I think we're at a wonderful time. What else? Yeah. What else do you want to say? To I, you know, listeners? I just uh, please reach out to us, ask us your questions and stuff like that. We are lining up some uh, some guest speakers. We're going to be going on the road in a few weeks to talk to a, uh, a general manager of a utility to uh, share with us his concerns. Uh, his opportunities, what keeps him awake at night, and uh, what he's staring at down the road in the future. So we're mixing it up. We're listening to what, what it is you have to say. I think, as you can tell, Nate and I are having a blast. We're loving it. We're having a lot of fun with this conversation. Can, can uh, you name drop uh, the guest coming up, or, or is that a not yet? Reveal? Not yet. Okay. I want to make sure we're 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 still uh, we're still ironing out a few contractual details. <laughs> But uh, I just, uh, I'm excited about where this is going. The feedback's been phenomenal. Get involved. Uh, let us know what's on your mind. If you got a subject we want to talk about, uh, we're open to just about anything. If uh, we can't figure it out, we'll uh, get somebody on here at the microphone that can. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, have a safe week. Have a safe month. Be safe out there doing what you're doing. And uh, thanks again for your time.